Um, hello and welcome to this new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs, uh, streaming from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm joined as always uh, by William Soki, who is in Johannesburg, South Africa. I have a cold, so excuse my voice. Um, Will and I, we are the co-presenters of this uh, AIC Talk, which is Africa's a Country's weekly talk and interview show, and which is produced as always by the magnificent Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our show last week, it was about telling stories in Africa. We spoke to Dana Balut and Adam Schoberg, who are the producers of a podcast called The Messenger, which is about the musician turned politician from Uganda, Bobby Wine. And then we spoke to Emer Basire and Aaron Hyde Nolan about Todd Webb in Africa, which is this magnificent book that they put together which collects the photographs taken in Africa by the renowned American photographer, Todd Webb. I absolutely encourage everyone to check out clips from that episode, which are available on our YouTube channel, but best check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with the rest of our episodes from our archive. Um, on today's show, uh, we're exploring the life, thought, and legacy of the Pan-Africanist and anti-apartheid revolutionary Robert Mangaliso Subukwe. We're especially excited by a recent publication of the prison letters of Robert Subukwe, and we are wondering what in insights we can gain about Subukwe on them. So first, we will have Derek Hood, Hook, sorry, who is the editor of this collection of letters, and he will join us to talk about them. And then we'll have Presses Bikitsa and a returning guest, Petani Matsvi Bandila, joining us for a discussion about Subukwe's influence today. But before we discuss this revolutionary world, there's a small revolution taking place in India that you would like to talk to us about. It says, yeah, it's a, not, it's a not so small revolution that's taking place. And it's actually, we spoke about this very briefly a few weeks ago, but it's fascinating still the extent to which it remains underreported in mainstream media. So to try and give us sort of a little summary about what's going on and apologies because there's no way I'm going to be able to do justice to it. So as of September last year, there has been this burgeoning farmers movement in India, which includes small scale farmers, landless farm workers, large scale farmers, middlemen, sections of the middle class. It's really starting to build this broad coalition of supporters in, in Indian society. And basically what they're mobilizing against is the set of laws that the Indian government tried to pass last September which would transform India's agricultural sector and make it more corporate controlled and leave Indian farmers vulnerable to the tyranny of the market. So to understand exactly why that's such a big thing in India, um, a couple of years ago, you know, quite some years ago, in the 1960s, uh, India's agricultural sector underwent a kind of revolution. That period was actually called the Green Revolution. And effectively what happened is, like most post-independent states, India had to confront this problem of how to both increase its agricultural output, but to do so in a way that was fair and sustainable, and most importantly, could distribute food to the masses because the majority of India's population at the time, and even till today, is living under the poverty line and was food insecure. So they wanted to find a way in order to ensure that agricultural production in India primarily served the material needs of the Indian population. So what happened was, on top of introducing new farming technologies to make sure that agricultural production 
was more efficient. The Indian agricultural sector also involved tremendous support from the state. So what the government introduced was, let's talk about two things that they did. Uh, the first one is called a minimum support price. And basically what that is, is that the government conducts this assessment of current crops that are on the market and it sets a price for those crops. And for a number of those crops, uh, primarily wheat and rice, and primarily in two states in India, uh, Punjab and Haryana, it says that we will buy those crops from farmers. We will set a price in advance so those farmers know what they're going to be paid for their crops. And once we've purchased those crops, not only will we sell them on wholesale markets to private buyers, but we're also going to distribute them through this wide network to get food to the vulnerable for free. So it introduces this minimum support price and also introduces these agricultural produce markets, which are these physical markets where Indian farmers go in order to have their produce weighed, in order to have it bagged, in order to have it shipped and purchased by the government. And so it's these regulated markets where these Indian farmers are ultimately protected and they're ensured that they get uh, what they need for their produce in order to survive. So what these laws do is it effectively rolls back the state's involvement in agriculture and it leaves these Indian farmers vulnerable to the market because the government aims to scrap the minimum support price. So now farmers will sell their produce for whatever the market rate is. And as we know, when it comes to any commodity, that fluctuates quite violently, which could leave farmers in a very insecure position. But it's also going to scrap these regulated markets, which would allow private producers to come in, or private buyers rather, to come in and purchase these products at any price that they want, and there'd be no recourse for the farmers. But the other thing that these agricultural laws also do is they introduce contract farming. And what this basically means is that farmers will be in a position where they can agree to sell their produce to private buyers at predetermined prices. And although that doesn't seem like it's going to have an effect now, the cumulative effect of all of these laws is that over time, as a government's role in the agricultural sector diminishes and the role of private buyers increases, then through contract farming, these private buyers are going to have absolute leeway to set the prices in advance of the produce that they want to buy. And this is going to just leave Indian farmers at the permanent ebb and flow and the whims of these private buyers. So this mobilization has happened. You know, millions of farmers and supporters have flocked to Delhi. They began this on January 26th, which was a national holiday in India called Republic Day. And they've said, we want these laws completely scrapped. We don't want to negotiate with the government. We don't want these special committees set up to explore some kind of compromise. We want them completely repealed. And they've been absolutely steadfast on this position. And the government has responded with suppression. So they have barricaded Delhi, which is where a lot of these protests have been concentrated, Delhi and its outskirts, so that people can't get in and out of Delhi. They've, and they've implemented internet blackouts so people can't distribute information. And they've been arresting hordes and hordes of protesters and supporters on trumped up sedition uh, charges. Uh, most recently on Saturday, in fact, there's a young 22-year-old environmental activist called Adisha Ravi who was arrested. And 
the charge that was laid against her was that she edited this toolkit, which is has has become quite popular nowadays. Basically, a Google Doc which shows the many ways in which people can support these these farmers. And she was charged as for sedition for editing this document. And the police raided her home in Bangalore and they arrested her. And the Indian government was particularly incensed because this document that she helped edit was circulated on social media by by Gutta Thunberg, um, the famous uh, climate activist. So it's it's a serious, serious mobilization. And the fact that it's continuing, the fact that people have remained steadfast, the fact that despite the government's many attempts to try and smear these people, to say that, mm-hmm. oh, they're just interested in securing their own bag and it's not actually a revolutionary protest in the interest of the most vulnerable, the fact that government propaganda has been waged relentlessly to try and get people to believe that these protesters are these troublemakers, they've kept on going and they're getting more and more support. But miraculously, I think it's strange that across the world, this is still underreported. And I think that, and it's a bold thing to say, I think that this mobilization, in my opinion, might be more significant than any mobilization that we saw last year anywhere, more significant than Black Lives Matter, arguably because it's this direct confrontation with capital especially since, you know, the groups that want to pass these agricultural laws are these big, big, big businessmen in India. It's India's two richest businessmen, Mukesh Ambani and Gautam Adani, uh, who want to get into agriculture because it's one of the safest ways in which you can make profit, given how uh, sort of uncertain global markets are looking. And yeah, it has many lessons for the global South in terms of affirming the relevance of agrarian politics and how it can coalesce this broad coalition of of supporters i was going to say all of that but will will did a really good job which is like one uh, if you if you sort of just turn around the internet you'll see that it's it's probably the first major challenge to the modi government because they kind of they win elections and they've destroyed uh the kind of the equivalent of a sort of post-colonial nationalist party which was the congress party which is which looks at this point that they'll never win an election again and so India needs a new kind of politics to challenge Modi. And it's interesting, like when, when you when you talked about Ravi, I think this 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 part about how these alliances between farmers and, if you want, uh, young people, people in urban centers, like seeing those connections, I think this is what makes uh, this yeah. interesting. But um, I think we we have to move to our first guest. If we we could we could have a whole discussion. We should probably have a discussion about rural political movements and their potential um, in, in one Absolutely. of our upcoming shows. But I know there's a lot of people they here today for for um, somebody just asked, where is Patani? He's going to be <laughs> um, Yes, this is why we're here. I know we've, we, talk, we talked about India when we started out, that we will, we're here today to talk about um, the legacy of um, uh, Robert Sabukwe. So just to a reminder to you to hit and like, um, and subscribe on our YouTube as well as our Facebook. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of the show's episodes and help fund Africa as a country in general. Also, if you have questions, you can post them while you're watching uh, on the stream in YouTube. You could post them on Facebook. You can also post them on Twitter. And we will put them on the screen. And if, if so, we might we'll ask them uh, from our guests. So let's get to our first guest because I know we've belabored and we we're making people wait. So yes, our first guest with a lot of fanfare. This is uh, Derek Hook. 
Dr. Hook is an associate professor in psychology, and I'm probably going to mess up the university's name at the Key University. Duquesne. Duquesne. <laughs> French. It's French. Yeah. Pittsburgh, and he's an extraordinary professor in psychology um, at the University of Pretoria. He's a practitioner of psychoanalysis with expert experience in the areas of Lacanian psychoanalysis, post-colonial theory, the work of uh, Franz Fanon in particular, the psychology of racism and critical psychology. And he's here today because he's also the editor of a collection of over 300 of Robert Subukwe's letters from the period 1960 to 1969 called Lie on Your Wounds, the Prison Correspondence of Robert Mangaliso Subukwe, which was published by Wits University Press in 2019. So let's start with, uh, with a more personal question, perhaps, uh, Derek, which is how did you um, end up taking on this project? What, like, wh why, why did you decide to look at these letters of Robert Subukwe? Um, it's a great question. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, William. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, the reason I ended up being so fascinated with Sabukwe's letters was because I was teaching in South Africa maybe 20 years ago, um, and I was trying to think about what form of psychology is not simply another American textbook form of psychology to be teaching within the South African context. That led me to Fanon, um, who remains an abiding research interest, particularly in how he theorizes um, colonial racism, uh, and after reading Fanon, it made me realize, dude, you've been in South Africa all this time. Why aren't you thinking about Biko as a type of psychologist, which may sound initially a little counterintuitive, but certainly in as much as black consciousness needs to engage with a whole series of concepts of consciousness, identity, so on and so forth, that, that seems an important move to make. So I started doing some work on, on Biko. And the more I explored Biko, the more I realized that there was a Biko before Biko, if you know what I mean. And the Biko before Biko, I think, is, is, is Subukwe. So the next step was, and, and you could say this was maybe, you know, a kind of step of realizing uh, my whole life was in Johannesburg. I'd been at Wits University for years. I finally go downstairs in the Africana Library at Wits University, and there, lo and behold, there is a whole treasure trove of letters, um, Robert Subukwe's letters. And the first time I found this, for me, it felt like discovering buried treasure because... You didn't have to look very far, um, and you would find all these handwritten letters, the stamps, the addresses, um, written by Subukwe when he was in, in prison. And um, it just, uh, it astounded me that not more had been done to publish those letters. Now, admittedly, there's the, the famous Benjamin Pogrant book, um, How Can Man Die Better? I mean, many people know this. It's, I think, now probably in its fifth edition. Um, so it's, it's very much a staple of Subukwe literature within South Africa. You know, I, whenever I'm in South Africa, I still see it in bookstores, which is a great sign. So there was, um, there was that. But I suppose what I started to feel was, you know, we don't hear Subukwe's voice and we don't see Subukwe's words perhaps as much as we should. And um, yeah, so for a while I was... I was tempted to say, well, why, why don't I also try to do a, a, a biography? And then, of course, it dawned on me that, dude, it's not your story as such. Um, and, and, and that was, that was the, the, both the emotion and the inspiration to say he's got all these letters, all these words, all these expressions. Let's try and put them together to try at some, in some limited way to let Zabukwe himself speak. 
Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating, and we're, we're gonna discuss in specificity what Sabukwe has to say. But could you maybe for our audiences who might not be so familiar with Sobukwe and what he represents not only to South African history, but generally continental history, in the 20th century in South Africa, there are these towering figures. There's Lutuli, Mandela, uh, there's Biko, as you just mentioned. And the way you put it just now is that Sobukwe was Biko before Biko. So can you, for the benefit of our audiences, just place Sobukwe in that political tradition uh, in relation to the Pan-Africanist Congress as well, which is the movement that he founded. Great, okay, so let's see if we can do this very quickly. Um, one of the points that really drew me to Sobukwe is how much Sobukwe has been forgotten. So there's a couple of historical moments which sometimes strike us as, really, are you serious? And one of those was the fact that in the early 1960s, Subukwe, uh, and in, Subukwe was seen by many Africanists, many Africans across the continent as much more of a promising hope for some kind of revolution or fundamental um, post-colonial state and post-colonial vision of, of, a, of, of Africa and of Azania of South Africa than, than was Mandela. So it's just important to remember that, I think, that as a whole series of decolonization movements were sweeping across Africa, which is also importantly the context for when Subukwe speaks about a, a genuinely pan-Africanist vision, this is very different in its in its um, in many of its uh, expressions and many of its instances of radicalism from something like the Freedom Charter, from something like a more moderate direction where the ANC was going at that time. So if you go back even to 1952, you start to find that the young Subukwe, I think it's in 48, that he, that, he, that he joins the ANC, he's part of the ANC Youth League. He's very inspired, very passionate by all of this, but very quickly it becomes apparent to him that the more moderate um, attempts within the ANC, who's seeking some kind of collaboration, who's seeking some kind of political um, uh, relationships, particularly with white liberals, for example, is not the way he wants to go. He thinks, and that's why I say in some respects, he's the Biko before Biko. Because for him, such a political attempt, as, as useful as it may have been to create various allegiances and so on and so forth, is inevitably going to be watered down by white liberals, right? Who are going to bring some political idea, but they're going to have a kind of integrationist agenda. And for Subukwe, this becomes a problem because the more there's a kind of integrationist agenda that's set by white liberals, the more it's going to favor them. And what that is ultimately not going to deliver is the fact that the people who most need Africa, who belong in Africa, and who need to speak and, and, and who, whose needs need to be met are Africans themselves. Hence, the, the revolution, so to speak, must be by Africans for Africans. That whole very pro-Africanist discourse is something which doesn't come through so strongly in other facets of the ANC at that time. So there's a break with the ANC. Subukwe then goes on to lead the Pan-Africanist Congress, who is not willing to, to kind of um, take a, a, a slower, uh, more integrationist approach. And, and thus we see the, the, the kind of um, billiard balls of history because on 21st of March, 1960, there's the, the campaign, the anti-pass campaign, Subukwe calls it the positive action campaign. And um, he mobilizes thousands of Africans uh, to go and hand in their passbooks or be deliberately arrested in an attempt that will thus absolutely 
um, overflow the system. The South African police force will not be able to deal with this. And there's a demonstration thus that the system is unsustainable and, and inequitable uh, and oppressive. And interestingly, actually, looking over the book before the interview, I see that I included a letter that he sent to, to the South African Minister of uh, Justice or Police before, saying, this is what we're going to do. Do not open fire on us. This is exactly what we're going to do. We are peacefully going to uh, submit to arrest. That's the nature of this, this campaign. But do not open fire on us. And of course, that's exactly what happens on the 21st of March, uh, 1960 in Sharpville. We have at least 69 people dead. Um, and from that point, Subukwe is imprisoned, the ANC is banned, the PAC is banned, and, and, and that's actually in many respects where the book begins um, for those, those years of his imprisonment. So <laughs> that was a little brief, but I hope that you... Was good. That was good, that was good. Um, that was, yeah, that was tremendously comprehensive and we appreciate it. To ask a, a follow-up question, and we want to talk about the book and the letters and what Subukwe articulates himself through there, but... I'm curious to hear, as far as you understand it, what is Sobukwe's idea of an African? Because I think this is something that is often a very contested concept, whether it's some people who say that Sobukwe had a more kind of uh, ethno-racialist de definition of being an African, which is that people who originate from the continent of Africa, or was it this other more substantive vision of being an African, which is being committed to the liberation of the African continent and its people. And that's something that someone can subscribe to regardless of, of their origin. How do you understand what it meant to be an African? And just to add to that, I think in the book, for example, when he writes to, to Benjamin Pogren, at one point, I think he just sort of matter-of-factly says something like, as one African to another, it's, a, it's in a letter, I think, about books, but he just kind of drops that. So can you just a little bit, yeah, say a little bit about his understanding of African? Yeah, I mean, it's a little odd, you know, for, I suppose for me to be, you know, reflecting on this. Although then again, maybe not. But I think the way to answer your question is, as far as I understand Subukwe's approach here, he says, if you, you are an African, if you live in Africa, if you pay allegiance to Africa, and if you willingly endorse an African majority rule, and he also then has a kind of semi-definition of what it means to be non-African. And I think this is sometimes forgotten. So let's let's remember this as well. For Subukwe, you can have been born in and live in Africa and not be African as well, right? So, so let's just bear that in mind. Because sometimes uh, I think you're alluding to some of these debates whereby people say, well, you know, um, despite that I'm white, I was born, I've lived my whole life, several generations. Therefore, I'm by definition an African. Well, yeah, maybe, but according to Subukwe, you need to fundamentally have that allegiance. In other words, Africa comes first in your political allegiances and in your national allegiances. It's the place that you are living in, the place that you are committed to, the place that you would be exercise some fidelity to above and beyond any other nation, right? Africa itself. And, and fundamentally, it also means being, as he's put it, willing to... Um, endorse and live with African majority rule, which is, you know, obviously a line, uh, uh, a qualification of his times. But those those terms that he offers are still fairly illustrative, fairly useful for us, I think, because, you know, it makes a case in point. I could, for example, claim, yeah, 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 I'm an African. But then you just ask, like, well, where do you live? And, you know, what what is the passport that you hold? And then suddenly, 
you become aware that opportunistic attempts to claim my Africanness as a white person, for example, may not actually be as justified as I would like to believe that they are. So I, I want to just—I'll just mention this, and I wanted to ask a question about about sort of the stuff that he write that he's writing about in the letters. Like one thing I think that's striking, just on this point. Um, you note that he he actually maintains a number of close relationships with whites. I think that there's a there's a way in which the PAC later gets written about that it's anti-white. But I think it's fascinating that Sabuque's uh, most uh, he's most the most personal collaborator, if you want, is like Benjamin Pogren. Like they write to each other about marriage. I think at one point he's counseling uh, Pogren about about divorce. I, I've noticed that. But you know, Yulali Stott, who's a Cape Town city councillor, etc. Um, um, so this, I thought that was fascinating uh, in, in the letters, but I want to ask about something else, which is there, it strikes you when you, just from the beginning, just how much uh, he is somebody who's interested in literature. And I think, of, of course, it makes sense before he goes to jail, he's teaching liter African literature at the university, um, at Vitt University. Um, but I wanted you to maybe say a little bit about that, like this. Despite the conditions that he's living in, he's having these debates with people about, uh, with, with his correspondence, about mm -hmm. a novel he's reading or a play. I just thought that was very interesting that, uh, you know, there's a consistency about his obsession with literature. I, I found this such an incredible part of reading the letters and trying to do research because it made me aware that in, in many instances, internationally in South Africa, wherever, that there's, there's a series of subukwes one is the much feared image of Sabukwe as Pan-Africanist that white South Africa at the time, and maybe in some respects still today, feared. The other is, you know, the, the, the leader, the kind of firebrand PAC president and leader. So there's multiple different depictions of Sabukwe. But what the letters make apparent is that the whole prof, which is actually, that's another one, a third one, Sabukwe prof as professor. But what a lot of those depictions seem to forget or don't feature strongly enough is the literary Sabukwe. This was a guy who would, I mean, if you've read the, the letters, you'll see that all the time. There's a little biblical phrase. There's a biblical verse. There's a, there's a piece of poetry from Wordsworth. There's, he's constantly, he's omnivorous in the literature that he's reading. Um, and when I spoke to Dini Sabukwe, his, his late son, he, he, he affirmed this. He said, you know, he, my dad would read everything. Um, so all the way through the letters, there's references to Greek tragedy, to uh, African folklore, to proverbs. You know, he had a, such a fluency with language, with culture, with, and it's not just novels or just nonfiction. He's reading all of this stuff. And um, it's, just, it's just incredible to read that because this is his lifeblood. Um, and of course, you could say, which may anticipate one of your questions, the letters are obviously censored, right? So he's got to find something to talk about and to be able to connect with people, many of whom he hadn't met who started writing to him, right? So he's got to find a way of doing that. Um, but that, whether that being the case, he's often very interested in talking about and expressing, experimenting with a little bit of poetry, for example. Um, multiple different forms. And he's also very non-chauvinistic, right? So there's Afrikaans yeah, yeah. that, that pops up in there. He's always interested with Pogrand in, in Judaism, um, in, in Jewish history. And he's just he's just a very open um, intellectual. There's a, there's a moment, I think, where he writes to Pogrand about, uh, Pogrand had written an article about an expose of prison conditions. And he says to him, I can tell you what's gonna happen. They're gonna say that you're Jewish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 
so he he, he, so he also he also notices anti-Semitism. I thought that that was an interesting sort of thing about Sabuk, where um, the wine you just mentioned sort of in passing, but I think it's it's really worth emphasizing the way he writes about Afrikaans, that he mentions that when he, he grew up in Khraflanet, and he writes about, which is in the Northern Cape, and he writes about kind of the, the way Afrikaans operated in the black community, the way Kosa took on words from Afrikaans, the way these illiterate preachers would sort of speak in this old Dutch. Um, and as you, you pointed out, like he's reading, somebody sent him Contrast, which is a very well-known early 60s South African sort of literary journal. And he says, I find the Afrikaans poems uh, better to read than I would the English. I thought that those were sort of elements of Subukwe's personality that, that people don't, that people don't know about, I think. I mean, it, it's, it's tremendous, the degree to which he defies one's expectations sometimes. Although having said that, this appreciation, whether it's Afrikaans, whether it's Tosa, whether it's whatever, you know, it, it's very much a part also fundamentally actually of his political uh, views, right? Because, because for him, um, and sometimes, well, I don't know, maybe people forget this, maybe they don't. But of course, part of apartheid's policy was the divide and conquer thing of, you know, separate homeland states. Let's uh, exacerbate different ethnic identities. And so there's a number of times when when um, apparent contradictions emerge, you know, Subukwe will say, well, this is the, the, the clan animal from my upbringing, or whatever, but I'm not fundamentally just Kosa or anything like that. Um, I speak Afrikaans. My brothers are absolutely fluent in Afrikaans. And my mother, I think he says my mother and my brother. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and some of the anecdotes you mentioned. I mean, for me, those are some of the most precious and, and, and wonderful stories that he tells. And he's a storyteller. That's the other thing that, that I yeah. think we forget. The stories about Krafrenet, about going to church, about different accents, a, a colored accent, or, you know, all of these different kinds of things, which for him are very much part of what Krafrenet was which is not to make it thus just one uh, segregated unit of a certain type of ethnic ethnicity. For him, you know, blackness in that respect, although these aren't really terms he uses, right? But that is, that is a, a, an identity, right. yeah, needs to be. Would you, would you say, I mean, would you say, uh, I mean, another thing to, to remember about Sabukwe is that occupationally he began as an instructor of African languages at Wits University. And when we talk about the literary Sobukwe, something I remember reading is that he expresses in a letter how he had hopes to go study linguistics in the Netherlands. Would you say that we get a portrait of a man who, it's, it's almost paradoxical, because on the one hand, he does seem like he's a reluctant politician. It seems like he would much rather spend his time telling stories, reading poetry, being immersed in the world of letters. But on the other hand, he does, and he, he makes it, clear in his sort of speech to Fort Hare students that his his definition of being political is not just being someone who is a party member, but regardless of what your occupation is, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lecturer, whatever it is, you must be political. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's almost, I don't know how exactly to ask the question, but we get this this person who was a politician or involved in politics almost because circumstances demanded it. But he was anxious for, for liberation so that he could get on with his life, so that he could continue to be immersed in the world of literature and the classics and so on. Is that yeah. a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 one way of receiving your comments is to say maybe there's a contradiction of sorts when we could, we could voice it like this. Maybe the best, most visionary political leaders are those who not 
best suited to be political leaders. It's a contradiction, right? But what I mean by that is, like, I've heard these kinds of arguments before where they'll say, someone will say something like, well, you know, Mandela was willing to compromise and, um, and Subukwe wasn't. And in fact, in, I, I forget if I've included it in the book, but there's this, there's this great passage where Mandela refers to Subukwe. And um, he says, uh, well, Subukwe, when he was in prison, was never willing to negotiate about better conditions. Uh, and of course, you hear that in Robert Island as well. He does not want to try to negotiate better conditions for himself, right? He he is suffering. Others are writing letters. Uh, I think Pogren writes sort of on his behalf, right? To the yeah. yeah. So he he's uncompromising. And I suppose sometimes you know, it's a general question, but maybe maybe like if politics is the art of the possible or impossible, like politicians need to be able to compromise and form certain kind of whatever uh, relationships and negotiate. But you could say that in many respects, um, referring back to Will's question, Subukwe to me is, is someone who doesn't, who's a supremely ethical person actually. Like he doesn't want to make some kind of, let's do a little arrangement here, which is not going to benefit, but of course it'll slightly um, give me more political gain. So what I mean by that is he's someone who's fundamentally committed to his political goals and not willing to compromise which may make him a much more admirable ethical political leader, but it also means that it, it's gonna make the road ahead very tough. And indeed it was for him, right? I mean, he suffered greatly. And one of the, the points in the book, for me at least, is that much of South African history hasn't yet acknowledged that, hasn't, hasn't realized the extent of his suffering. But then just the last point, I also think that weirdly enough, his literary loves, his literary abilities, his intellectual talents were very much part of the same general ethos as his politics, if that makes any sense. Like to read, to express suffering, to understand other people's suffering, to talk about right. the condition is partly what drives his politics, which is also fundamentally why he's so immersed in literature. I mean, lie on your wound is basically a, a phrase that he uses to talk about suffering, which I think he uses in letters to many people, including uh, Nell Marquardt, who I think is the wife of the of a former vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town. I wanted to ask you just about, because I know we have other guests who we want to bring into the discussion. Um, just quickly, there's two other things that stood out for me in the book. One is like his relationship to Christianity. He's obviously like a, a deep Christian. Um, and also, and maybe this this is where I was, I, I probably had a little bit more, uh, I thought it was a little bit more complicated, his relationship to communism. It, it seemed that, you know, you're on the island, like obviously if, if, if you get sent books that are anti-communist, the government's going to make you read them. But I'm curious sort of what you could say about he's related, because the ANC, of course, is aligned to the South African Communist Party throughout this period. What can you say about those two things and whether those things are related? One, him being a Christian, he's getting all these people, as you said, a lot of strangers, they send him like biblical literature, they send him stuff to read, food packages. Um, and at the same time, him and Pogren, they're having this, Pogren's doing some research and they're having a discussion about communism. Okay, yeah, so, you know, quite complex issues, but but let's just say that um, to begin with, at the period of imprisonment, and maybe just to make this clear in case we didn't already, after, um, after Subukwe is arrested, um, he's in prison for three years. He's given a sentence because, you know, he, he's incited this, the, the, the march. Um, after that, his prison term is, he's served his time. He's, he's technically no longer a prisoner, but of course there's the implementation of the Subukwe clause, which means that the Minister of Justice and the South African Parliament, apartheid parliament, can decide every year to extend it. So then he is sent for, for 
six further years to Robben Island. And just to make that point, in case we, we haven't stressed it, this is solitary confinement. Okay, it's he's and not just solitary where you know there's other prisoners nearby and you can hear them. Um, it's both slightly better in as much as you've got a little house, a little tiny little uh, cabin of sorts, but it's also much worse in the sense that your isolation is even more pronounced. And and before we end, we should return to that because that's part of the, the Sabukwe story, I think, and the suffering and and what happens to him in the course of that time that that we we should make mention of. So at the beginning of that time. He's saying things in his letters like, my darling, Veronica, how are you today? Like, I, it's Easter. I cheered myself up by putting on the radio and I sang some hymns. And so that whole Methodist Christian thing is still important for him. But somewhere in the middle of the letters, I, I'm going to guess it's like maybe 63 or 64. He says, I'm, I, I don't really believe anymore. And this, if you know Sabuque and you know his family background, is, is a kind of like, what's going on? It's a warning sign. There's something, there's something that's changing there. And that's quite a dramatic moment. Um, and I, I remember uh, Benjamin Pogrand also kind of gets a sense and asks him about this. So one quick comment about that. We don't know for sure what happens, why he seems to lose his faith. But there was one letter that stood out for me out of the however many that are in the book. Um, and Subukwe, is a, is a, he, he doesn't get, he doesn't show much anger or sarcasm. But there's one letter he writes to, to Veronica and he says, Mrs. So-and-so, who's a white liberal writing to him. Lots of white liberals start writing right, to right. Group, right? Um, and he goes, she says she was very sorry to read that refugees in Basutu land were all singing my praises as their leader. She hopes I'll denounce them and tell them that I am now a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose I'll have to take up ministry after that and be a good little Christian. And then he uses an expletive, um, a racist term. I don't think I'll answer the letter. I'll hurt her if I do. So on the one hand, you've got Sabuku, who comes in with very profound Methodist. And remember, his, his older brother is, and, and many members in his family have been preachers, right? Are very much immersed in the church. And then we also have this moment when people with white liberals who can get their letters through to him, presumably uh, much more easily than people who the, the government or the apartheid authorities may have had some suspicions about, try to position him as a Christian. But right. in those moments, he's also feeling that those people are thinking that he's got something to do with her. Poco, right? Um, right, yeah. And, and at that point, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be uh, seen in that way because that's a form of Christianity which somehow is going to just replicate some of the, the apartheid dynamics, which is precisely that he's fighting against. So we could speak more about that, but that's just one snippet. Uh, and it's a very powerful letter when he says that, because normally, you know, he tries, he's got this equanimity where he's trying to make things work with lots of letter writers who he's never met before. So that's the one thing. The, the, the communism thing is interesting because you could say that, um, that his overarching Africanist agenda means um, that if, communism is coming to South Africa and is coming to, to benefit the struggle in whatever means it may do so. If it comes so in a form which is surreptitiously or not so surreptitiously promoting the role of white liberals, Zabuka is not going to be interested in that, right? He, he That's not the kind of struggle he's in this for. He, he, although weirdly as well, he's very interested in, in, in people who are the most oppressed within South Africa, within rural regions, for example. So he's not particularly enamored with communism, but of course that takes us to another uh, schism, another point of friction that, and um, 
I'd love to hear what people have to say about this. The version that comes out of Subukwe in Benjamin Pogran's book is one which is kind of more liberal friendly, right? And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for Benjamin Pogran and his work. Um, and I think Subukwe is a big enough person to be able to form relationships and genuinely have meaningful friendships and, and alliances with people who are not sharing his own political views. But I sometimes wonder if that tension within the letters that that Pogren very much wants to foreground and push forward a liberal agenda. And I don't think that that is Subukwe, actually. I think in some respects, yes, but in other respects, no. I think an Africanist gender is, uh, agenda is more important to him. So there's, there's no better way to sort of try and start teasing out this tension of which Subukwe we can portray, either a liberal-friendly one or a more radical Africanist one by bringing on our next two guests. So we'd like to welcome on to the, to the, to the episode Precious Bigitra and returning guest Patani Majivandila. Uh, hopefully Patani's around. We know that he's struggling with internet connections, so he'll pop in and out as and when his internet is complying with him. Uh, but to tell you a little bit about our guest joining now, Precious is a history master's student at the University of Cape Town. Her research is on the Kosa woman poet and Precious is interested in how Mkletu was able to use poetry to mediate through a number of the led contradictory realities of black life in the early 20th century. And Patani is a, an Africanist historian, activist, and an active PAC member, as well as a contributor on Africa as a country. Check out his articles on the site. Uh, we are absolutely grateful to have the two of them on, and thank you so much, Precious and Patani, for joining us. I mean, I want to start with with the question that's sort of uh, that Derek's kind of let simmer right now, which is, how would you guys say Subukwe is received today? So, after fees must fall, after Rose must fall, how how were people trying to construe Subukwe? Which is the Subukwe that they most turn on? To, they most turn to rather. To, to address contemporary South African realities. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Will, uh, for the opportunity. And thank you to, to, to Derek as well. I've really enjoyed um, listening to some of his insights and I got a chance to, to read um, the book over the weekend. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question directly. Um, perhaps, um, I can just kind of talk about my own journey. Um, so I arrived Please. at UCT um, in 2014, and um, the time that I arrived, nonpartisan politics were, you know, kind of on the rise. And uh, with Rhodes Must Fall and Fees Must Fall, I think um, PASMA had fertile ground uh, to start off uh, something there. So um, I think PASMA was established in 2015, just before or after um, uh, the occupation of, of, of Rhodes Must Fall. I mean, uh, so, I mean, yeah, that was quite a, an interesting time, right? Um, I just come back, um, I mean, I just arrived um, in Cape Town from East London um, and I was quite excited, right? About being a young person in a democratic South Africa. Um, but as I, um, 
I guess, started engaging in conversations with all kinds of people, um, saw that actually um, there are certain things that I wasn't aware of, right? Um, and so I fully immersed myself in the conversations that were happening on campus. And um, I leaned into um, PASMA as well, right? Um, and I won't talk about my own experiences and my disillusionment with um, Ipasma. Um, <laughs> maybe Petani and I will talk about that um, offline. But I think um, I think it's interesting, right, to to come into um, university and to learn that there were people like Sobukwe, right, um, and we had never learned about them, you know, in our historical training at school, right? Um, you're kind of learning about the French Revolution um, and all these, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the history curriculum is kind of regurgitated. You're learning the same thing in grade eight and grade nine, and it's not really useful. And only, I think, in grade 11 and matric are you learning about, you know, uh, kind of BCM there and, and, and um, you know, the road to uh, democracy. Um, and so I think for me, what really attracted me was that, geez, there's such uh, a richness of political thought, political history that I don't know about. But also, I think what was really convincing um, was that, um, you know, the questions that I was thinking about um, are the kind of questions that, you know, the likes of Osobukwe were wrestling with as well. Um, and so I think the political education um, was was really valuable in my time at UCT as I was trying to form my own thoughts. Um, and so it was quite interesting because exactly this time last year, um, I just finished a six week residency um, at Robben Island. Um, I was looking at, um, you know, two Kosa chiefs who were incarcerated on the island um, and their wives followed them uh, to Robben Island. So Chief Makoma and Chief Siolo and where I was placed, where I was living, um, was only a few, um, I guess, steps away from uh, Sobupe's house, right? Um, and I had the privilege of going into the house and reading the letters and seeing, you know, where he lived. Um, but I was mortified actually to realize that actually the, the tourists who were going into Robben Island um, did not get that opportunity. So what happens is that you go into Robben Island and um, the bus takes you past Sobukwe's house. Uh, the tour guide will say something, a few words about Robert Sobukwe, and then you'll move on to the tuck shop and then go back to the maximum security prison where you'll do an actual tour. And so, I mean, I think that that deliberate erasure of Sobukwe, right? Um, is 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 definitely still there, um, and so I I I mean I I really enjoyed my time at Robin Island, but I think that was something that I was just you know kind of um, shocked by that you know this erasure that we are constantly lamenting is something that is still going on, and and there seems to be no kind of interest to remedy that, um, and so I think for me as a young person. And the relevance of Osobukwe really is because, you know, the questions that I was asking um, and thinking about during my time at UCT, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I was like, oh, wow, he was thinking about the same things, right? So I remember reading um, the speech that he 
he gave at Forte as 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 the SRC president, um, and I mean the, the entire speech is worth reading. But um, something that really stuck out to me was um, what he said, um, and he said, you know, education to us means service to Africa, and he talks about you should always, you know, strive to be um, uh, the the fulfillment of your people's aspirations, right? Um, and so I think that spoke to me. And really stuck with me as as a young black person in South Africa that actually me being at the University of Cape Town means something should mean something. I'm not just there, um, but also I think to think that oh my gosh, I'm not thinking about these questions alone, um, but also that there is a, a rich uh, political history. There's a rich um, uh, you know kind of archive that we have that we haven't actually tapped into, um, which is quite sad, but also really exciting. And so um, I think. The lamenting of the erasure, definitely, but also I think um, not only to lament the erasure, but to work and to reclaim South Africa's political history and insert Usobukwe um, there is, is is an important project. Um, so yeah, I'll just pause there. Um, I don't know if you want me to say anything more. No, that was that was absolutely wonderful. Um, we do want you to say some more and we're gonna ask some more questions. Uh, I just wanna remind everyone I know a lot of people came for Petani. He's a popular man, unfortunately. <laughs> His internet connection is struggling. I don't know. I don't know what's. I, I, there's some erasure of Petani happening over here. <laughs> I can verify that Petani is, is is as much of a firebrand leader as his inspiration Subuke was. But I mean, Derek, I want to hear your thoughts, especially on this point that Precious just concluded with, which is about the erasure of Subuke and how, as Precious was mentioning just now in history textbooks, he's not really taught for a long period in South Africa's post-apartheid political history. There wasn't very much public acknowledgement of his influence in South African politics. The 27th of February, which is the day he passed on, is hardly commemorated outside of PAC circles. Um, yeah, why do you think that's sort of been a, an enduring sort of feature of, of Sabukwe and his legacy? It was one of the things that most made me want to collect the letters. And at the same time, I, I started working on a paper, which I called something like Subukwe Threatening Embodiment of Freedom. And the reason I gave it that title was I started collecting a whole bunch of South African history books and texts. And as I started doing that, you could see that there was this kind of unholy alliance between, let's say, uh, ANC allegiant historians and, and also, you know, more white written histories and previous racist apartheid histories. Two groups thus that would seem to have very little in common, but one thing they did seem to agree on was that Subuku and the PAC mustn't be given any prominent uh, focal point in the retelling of a certain period in South African history. So the kind of unholy alliance has also then had a whole series of knock-on effects such that there's a deliberate, in some respects, I can only assume systematic attempt to keep that material. PAC history, Sibukwe's history, a variety of, of important PAC heroes outside of the, the, the confines of written history. But it's also not sometimes a fully conscious thing. So, you know, the story that Precious tells, I, I mean, I also have had an experience like that, being on Robben Island, um, the guy on the bus is saying, well, we can stop here at the Sibukwe house if you want, but we can carry on. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that the person's deliberately a bad person or anything, but it, it somehow becomes, it becomes habituated, that sidelining. Um, 
one of the people I spoke to in preparing the book was Tommy Kaplanke. Um, and he, you know, he's also done a whole lot of research on, on Subukwe. And he just put it in very stark terms. He said, where is the man's voice? Um, the amount of scrutiny and recording and surveillance that Subukwe would have been subjected to in prison, elsewhere, prior to prison, after prison, was pretty damn intensive. But there is no, there's no existing recording of his voice. And it, what saddens me, and also gives me a little bit of hope, actually, is that this, this attempt to repress, neglect, deny, sideline Subukwe has gone on for a long time. And it's almost as if there's an inability to want to engage, or at least with certain people, not everybody, obviously, with what Subukwe is saying. It's almost like what he was saying couldn't really be heard. But I think part of what our, our further guests are now saying is the time is, has started now over the last five, six, seven, eight years where Subukwe's voice can be heard, where it is being heard in a more dramatic way. And, and the irony of history is that things that he was saying even as far back as that speech, the SLC president's speech, seemed to have a, a, a distinct uh, articulation and a distinct force in today's South Africa. And I think that's, that's, that's the reason for hope, that even though there's been this systematic whitening out or, or blankening out of Subukwe for so long, part of his political message is now being heard in a way that maybe it hasn't been heard in quite the same way for 40 years. Uh, president, you wanted to add something, right? Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to add two things. I think I think also um, something that we, we we maybe fall into the danger of is wanting to box people as radical or conservative, right? Um, and so when we cannot understand that people are complex or are making strategic political decisions, um, we don't want to engage with them. Um, and I say this because I'm working on um, this Kosa woman poet who's writing in the 1920s, um, you know, she is uh, aligned with Congress and then she leaves Congress and, you know, starts writing for a newspaper that is funded by the Chamber of Mines, right? Um, and, you know, if you would read that uh, very simplistically, you would see it as um, her aligning with a more conservative kind of platform. But actually, um, there are particular kinds of reasons why she decides to do that. And so I think um, what, what I think Derek kind of pointed to this is that um, we we cannot hear Osobukwe, we cannot understand him because we want to understand him as radical or as conservative, right? We only want to understand people in those ways and, um, and not see that, um, you know, there are some some things are gray areas right you know and also he is um making strategic decisions um and 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 yeah i mean i think that the boxing of people also limits us um in the way that we see them and in the way that we can actually learn um and so i think that is that is definitely a blind spot and something that um those who are doing work on him um, need to uh, definitely, you know, kind of uh, show us and 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 work on. Um, but I think on the on the issue of erasure, um, I I think we also erase um, Umam Veronica um, and her mm -hmm. activism mm -hmm. and her role um, because you know, like I said, I went on to Robben Island to do research on these Kosa chiefs. Um, their wives followed them to incarceration. Uh, voluntarily, right? Um, and in one of the threads uh, that one of my good friends, Zikona Valela, has on uh, 
on Twitter. She has amazing uh, historical threads. If you haven't um, checked her out, please check her out. Um, but, uh, you know, Zikona says that Mom Veronica actually offered to stay on Robin Island uh, to care for her husband. And I um, I suspect that she would have then heard that actually Ukaiki Nononesi um, had followed their husbands, uh, Umakoma and Usiolo, um, to Robin Island to stay with their husbands. And of course, I mean, that request was not um, was 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 not granted. But she carried on writing a series of letters demanding for her husband to be taken care of. And I think that those letters should be compiled into a book um, and we should actually, you know, um, see uh, and, and, and think about her as well. You know, we cannot just think about Robert Subukwe, the man, without thinking about and knowing um, Umamu Veronica, who was um, an activist in her own right. She led a nurse's strike in Ellis. Um, and she had, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, her life was difficult. She went through quite a lot, you know, with the with the with the death of her sister and her brother-in-law, and then with her with her husband as well. But her activism um, is something that we actually need to put in the foreground, and I think we we fail to do that. We want to see her as the mother of Azania only, uh, but not as a person, not as a co-actor with Somukwe, uh, not as someone who um, you know had her own uh, political ambitions and 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 you know kind of contributions in our country's uh, political history. And so I think. In the issue of erasure, we need to think deeply about the role of women. Um, you know, a friend of mine always talks about, you know, Sobukwe grew up in a community. You know, he had a sister. He would have had Odatoba, well, you know, his 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 dad's uh, uh, sisters um, and, and, and all kinds of people. Um, you know, when he went into Forte, he would have interacted with all kinds of people. And so even as we talk about the man Sobukwe and want to reclaim mm. his space in South Africa's political history, I think we should be careful not to carry on the further erasure, right? Because we we love pioneers, we love uh, big men, we love vanguards, um, and we leave aside uh, people we think um, don't have much to say. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think I think we, yeah, I think we need to really think about. Uh, you know, Mamu Veronica as well, and and then put on the foreground. Um, I, I really enjoyed, you know, the letters um, that he he wrote to her that were um, in the house um, uh, that Usobuke stayed in. And I think at some point she was talking about how he was, uh, you know, cold and he needed some, you know, shoes and and some socks. And and I mean, I think it's it's just, you know, uh, we need to actually think about that as well. We cannot speak about Usobuke without speaking about Mamu Veronica. Not only speaking about her as the mother of Azania, but as a woman who was uh, a political activist, you know? So yeah, I'll in Derek's book, and I we, we we you know we don't want to misrepresent the book. Uh, it's called the Prison Correspondence, and you're right. There's a ton of letters between the two of them, and there are letters that she's writing to people like uh, Pogran to the Minister of Justice. So she herself, you are correct. Like I think there, uh, maybe Derek, you want to say something about that quickly. Um, that I think the the the. the you know, her, her life and her role should not be underestimated in the story. Yeah, I mean, to, just to affirm, I, you know, I agree completely with, with what Precious is saying. Um, the, the, one, the one letter, I mean, there are some of her letters in the, in the book, um, but one of them that is so powerful is when she writes to the Ministry of Justice, right, Sean just uh, alluded to it, uh, knowing that, that Bob himself wouldn't do that, right, that, that this was necessary. 
Um, so she she's a kind of constant presence in many respects um, in the way Bob is thinking about things and 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 in the book. But yeah, I, th I think Precious is right. I mean, it, it would be nice in a way to have a book that broaches this whole piece of history from her perspective and foregrounding her her role. Um, and I would like to think that this book is, you know, maybe the first kind of mini step on that on that journey. But we haven't got there yet. And um, I mean, just also to note something that was very poignant. You know, I, I said at the beginning of the book, but the same week that this book was about to be submitted, uh, Mar Veronica dies. And, um, you know, that, that was a little bit of a heartbreak because I don't know, you know, she was getting a bit older, whether she needs to or wants to see the book, I didn't know, but it, it was just, it just seems so sad to get to that point, bearing in mind what we've been saying about how, how difficult it is to have Subukwe's voice, the family's voice, um, that part of, of South African history, the Subukwe part of uh, South African history to be told, and, and you know, it comes right when, when she dies, so, you know, that was a, it's kind of a sad thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I truly, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it would be important for the next work in terms of uncovering Sobukwe to involve uncovering the people in his immediate influence that shaped his political convictions, especially given the overlap between the personal and the political in his life. And undoubtedly, Uman Veronica plays a towering role over there. But I'm, I, I just want to announce that Patani has... Has finally joined us on the on the show. The guerrilla is here. We're excited that uh, after all of the struggles, he's been able to join us. Patani, we're we're so grateful that you've still managed to make the time. Um, we're gonna hopefully pressure you to put together some reflections on some book to publish on the site, uh, so that you continue can continue to make a contribution. But Patani, I, I want to ask you now that you're here. We've spoken a lot about Subukwe. We've spoken a lot about the people in his life. We've spoken about his own personal convictions and the interactions he's had with those who are closest to him. But we haven't really addressed the relationship he had with the broader formation that he helped found, i.e. the PAC. So, I mean, the question I want to ask to you now is, Subukwe really couldn't play much of a role in shaping up the PAC after he helped found it. He was hoisted off to jail almost immediately afterwards and then had to see out the rest of his life under house arrest. So what do you think, how do you think Subukwe envisioned the PAC developing? And would you say that the organization that the PAC is today is the organization that Subukwe imagined it to be when he helped set it up? Oh, thanks, William. After serious struggles of trying to log, uh, to get in, I finally managed to get in. But the question that you are asking is is a, is a very difficult question. That, of course, uh, every sane member of the Pan African Congress of, of Azania has probably pondered on that question and asked themselves that uh, does the current uh, party or uh, the, the way that the party is today uh, kind of envision the model that the founding fathers had in mind, or as we are speaking about Sobuka right now, was it the kind of vision that we had about the party that we have today? And of course, the uh, answer that one would give is a definite no, if we're being honest and uh, being uh, realistic about where we are as a party. But also uh, looking at the fact that uh, what uh, what you have alluded that uh, 
as immediately as soon as the party was founded, uh, Sobuko and the top brass leadership of the party was hoisted to prison. Almost immediately, 11 months after the party was formed, uh, we see uh, uh, the, Sharp, uh, the Sharpville um, uh, massacre was happening in March 1961, just 11 months after the, the party was formed. So, uh, in, in realistic, realistically, uh, at the time, the party had not uh, achieved uh, to say that to be a cult cultural organization as uh, to the ANC, which was formed in 1912. It's a party that almost every black person would know who was living at the time, but the PAC was, was failing you and managed to shake uh, the racist uh, structures to the core. So in today's time, uh, what the party has has uh, has become, or what the party has become, as every, everyone will know that post-1994, the party has been riddled with uh, serious factionalism and uh, ability to find um, a political identity post-1994 South Africa. But uh, the good thing about uh, history and, uh, and dialectics is that the truth uh, always uh, reveals itself. The truth always finds a way of trying to come out because post-1994 South Africa has been nothing but just a compromise and a complete uh, uh, deliberate creation of uh, and the continuation of the apartheid of the apartheid legacy in itself in uh, in, in a different form. So what has uh, really come out of 1994 post uh, post 1994 South Africa is that the people of South Africa, as uh, as 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 uh, as seen raised mostly by the EFF post 1994 South Africa, is that uh, the land question still remains unresolved, it, and that was the core and the primary motives of the kind of politics that Sobukwe and the PAC were championing. So in today's time, uh, the party in itself finds itself in uh, in a serious quagmire to rebrand itself and also carry on the card gels of the struggles as it was left by the founding fathers. But as long as the primary contradiction of why the party was formed in the first place, that the African people have been dispossessed of their land, have been uh, enslaved in the uh, in the land of their birth until such primary primary contradictions are resolved. Uh, the uh, the political objectives that uh, the leadership of Sobukwe died for and sacrificed their life for will always remain uh, very much important. Um, let me, I wanted to ask maybe as a follow-up to what Patani sort of just sort of giving us a kind of capsule of like what's happened to the PAC. But I think the, the question I have, and maybe everyone could sort of answer this, and I know because we, we, we press for time, and I, we, I feel bad that Patani We've had all these problems with the internet. We come up right here at the end. Um, my question is like, and, and this relates to also how Subukwe, I think, operated around fees must fall and roads must fall, like how students deployed Subukwe. Can Subukwe, can Subukwe operate like bigger than the PAC or is, is, he, is, he, is, is it that he's very much associated with the PAC and that's the only politics that how he could be expressed now? And I'm asking this also because Batani alluded to this. I think the EFF, for example, have deployed some PAC slogans, and I think they've deployed sort of Subukwe as sort of as a political ancestor, uh, therefore, like, you know, taking his politics into another moment. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not a, a bad thing to say, but they are bigger than the PAC. They're growing. So is that a... I'm not sure I'm, sorry, I'm making this... Making the question too difficult, but is can, can Subukwe be the basis for... a for a, a kind of a larger politics that can take on, if you want, the ANC. Because people, I think somebody in the comments said, the ANC is not delivering to poor people. Is there something in what Sabukwe talked about 
how he imagined politics that can go beyond that? And do we see that politics in South Africa today? Uh, for me, for me, Sean, uh, you, you must remember that uh, when the PEC was formed, it is not it is not formed to be a party that uh, is supposed to be uh, permanently in the lives of the African people. It is a vehicle that must take the African people towards liberation, right? And that vehicle found voice in in the Africanists who uh, rejected the idea of the Freedom Charter in within the uh, Congress tradition of the ANC. And then they, find, they found themselves having to have a new banner or an umbrella that can be able to expose or uh, live up to the 1949 program of action, which was adopted by the ANC in in in, in the Blue Forden Congress. So, in, to be uh, to be honest, uh, uh, the reality is that uh, it is quite difficult to remove completely Sobukwe from our, our uh, uh, from the PAC, as we have seen in post 1994 South Africa, where uh, Bantu Steve Biko has been completely isolated and been removed from the Black Consciousness Movement, where in today's time Biko has been found to be able to blend into the post 1994 South Africa and the sting of his politics and the and the radicalness and the and, and the truth of his politics have kind of been made to blend into post 1994 South Africa and that's something that uh, I believe that uh, mainstream politics and liberal politics have been trying to do with Sobukwe and trying to make him blend into uh, in, into into the South African politics and it has proven difficult because such kind of dishonesty and distortions of Sobukwe's legacy cannot happen unless if we're speaking re realistically about addressing the core principle of his politics, which was the uh, return of the land to the African people. So it becomes it becomes very difficult to completely remove Sobukwe from the PAC, as we have seen with the removal of Biko completely from the uh, BCM movements. I, I So in each time that the name of Sobukwe is invoked, we always think about the struggles that, that the PAC and APLA and, and and all the internal movements of the PAC that that, that have, have have championed and, and foregrounded. So it becomes very difficult if you don't have genuine and truthful politics to say that you are going to be able to remove a man of such caliber outside of the structure of the party that he believed in, uh, regardless of, its, of of the fact that it might be hamstrung or it might be not as strong as it was uh, uh, in the 60s. But it has proven to be very difficult to speak up about Sobuke outside uh, uh, outside the PAC and outside the land question, as we have seen with students uh, in the Rose Must Fall movement, that uh, when we when the name of Sobuko was was spoken, it was spoken at the same time uh, raising uh, 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 raising also the, the name of Biko. I think what was what was also very much important with, R uh, with RMF was also to be able to remove Biko and and put Sobuko and Biko in the in the same uh, in the same pedestal that. These are two people that spoke about the real politics that uh, should have taken precedence uh, post 1994 South Africa. And in today's time where we find ourselves, it's quite very much difficult to say that you are going to speak about Robert Mangalza Sobuku and not speak about the exploits of the PC and what the PC did. Because in, in, in reality, if it was not the PAC, uh, we were not going to have the ANC being banned. We're not going to have uh, the arms struggle as it took shape uh, in the form of Pogo and then later APLA and then the formation of, of MK later. So if we, without such action, so it, is, it becomes very much uh, difficult to remove the men so from uh, the politics of the PAC, regardless of the fact that 
uh, we might have one seat in parliament. That uh, remains, because the primary contradiction and the truthfulness and and uh, and the ideological clarity of the party is that the land remains the primary contradiction. And post-1994 South Africa has done absolutely nothing to address that because of uh, of the uh, of the negotiations and 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 the compromises which were reached in the early 90s by the ANC. Thank you so much, Patani. I think that was incredible. I mean, what you've what you've basically sort of teased out is is what is the the, the remaining agenda for us to do in order to fully work out Sobukwe's legacy, which is, as you've said, the, the contradictions which Sobukwe identified are objectively there, but there is still a, a social force that needs to emerge in order to, to fully work that out in society. That's, it's likely that it's going to come from some PAC corner. It might not. It might be something we don't even understand, but... Uh, you know, Patani, we're going to put pressure on you to to pen something for us, sort of continuing in these thoughts. But uh, unfortunately, at this stage, uh, we're pressed for time and we, we must conclude today's program. I want to thank all three of you so, so much, uh, despite the difficulties, despite the struggles uh, for all showing up. Derek, Precious and Patani, my wonderful co-host, Sean, our magnificent producer, Antoinette. And before we go off, uh, Precious would like uh, to read something from the poets that she mentioned earlier and that she's been researching, I think that would be a very, you know, Subukwe himself was a was a fan of letters, a fan of poetry, and I, I can't think of a, a more fitting way to conclude today's program. So, Precious, uh, over to you. Thank you so much, William. Um, so, one of the most enduring slogans of Black resistance is Maibui Africa. Um, so, that is the title of the poem that I'm going to read written by Um, I would have loved to read it in this closet, but I think for the benefit of everyone um, who is uh, listening, I'll read it in, in English. For a long time now, we've been calling Africa. Hear our wailing, garden of Africa. Your crop was consumed and scattered by birds, but you stood firm and never left us. Our voices are hoarse from imploring you, we track through nations, appeal to phantoms, nothing more than chicken scratchings, eager at dawn, at dusk, empty-handed. We call to you from Table Bay. We call to you from Algoa Bay. We call to you from Gramstar, clutching satchels, crammed with half-jacks. Drunk to death, we call you home. We cover your eyes and proclaim you blind. You go right back to where you came from as we call you home from the depths of depravity. You say, come back, you must come back. You profit to all the earth's nations. They come from the north, they come from the south, from the east and from the west. Africa stayed, she's nowhere else. Look how the grass continues to sprout. Look at the spring still bubbling with water. Look all around, it's all in its place. Will you go to the grave with nothing achieved, raising your cry, calling, come back? If you come back first, the nation will rise and news of its stirring will ring out to Jericho. But tell us, Africa, where else in the world can any old fool say, come home? From my point of view, we bear all the signs as we stumble along in stupidity. From the Buffalo's banks, we raise our cry, 
from the Chumay's banks, we raise our cry for all the black nations under the sun. So Satan's ashamed until his guts burst. You display no love, display no togetherness. You sit on the fence, won't take a stand. Nothing but sellouts, you set fires and run. Betray your own people to bolster the whites. Are you raising a cry saying, come back? You'll cry yourselves hoarse, you must come back. Gone are customs for setting up homesteads, monarchy, values, nothing is left. You live like locusts left by the swarm. You lost all pride, your sense of a nation. Lock, stock and barrel, everything's lost. You seek balm in the bottle that blots out all pain. You say, come back, you must come back. You scratch your head in search of escape. Nsikana warned you a long time ago, money's the lightning bird, leave it alone. Child of the soil of far-flung Africa, what have you done so to offend God? Here the chink sells you malt from your, for your home brew, there the coolie buy up your empties. Are you raising a cry? You must come back. Spurn advice and you'll come a cropper. Always recall where you come from. Seek the seers to tell you straight. Mercy, South African hills, while your people die, strangers cut off your country. With cause we cry, saying, come back, to induce birth pangs in her people. Mercy, South African valleys, peace, plains of our land. Look how we've plowed by the steam locomotives, rocking along like bull baboons. Come back, Africans, or will rolling years leave you marking time? while rain falls elsewhere and plagues striking your family. Peace, sun, peace, moon. Stewards of our protector, bear the report to the one on high. Plead our case in elegant terms. Peace, ow. So basically, Unonzi's um, Nkweto here is saying that for Africa to be restored, um, we must actually set our own house in order first. And I think, um, that is such a, a poignant uh, poem. Um, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me.